Okay. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's The Book Chain Project. This week, Candé Gourlay is interviewing Nadine Kadan, and both of them have an amazing discussion about their books, picture books, art, uh, creating amazing fiction, and also the uh, diversity of voices in children's literature and their experiences. It's really one, I think, of our most interesting talks so far, so I really hope you enjoy it, and I will see you. <laughs> Hello, I'm Candy Gourlay. Welcome to the Book Chain Project. Every week uh, you get a live interview on, on the Book Chain, authors interviewing authors. Last week I was interviewed by Mike Mann, the author of Ghost Cloud, and this week I'm passing it on and interviewing Nadine Kadan, the author of this picture book, Tomorrow. Um, I'm going to try to get Nadine on now. So I've just clicked the button. Nadine, hello to everyone who is joining us. It's a lovely evening. Thank you for joining. Hi, Catherine. Um, there you are. You're here. It worked. Hi, Nadine. It's actually worked. We're, we're, I hope we're actually online. It looks like it has worked. Yeah, I hope so. I, I was nervous, but I can see myself. So I'm hoping that the rest can see me. Success. <laughs> well, if uh, if you if the audience has not met me before, my name is Candy Gourlay. I write middle grade novels like this, and this, and this, and like Nadine, I come from another uh, from another place. I am not originally uh, from London, though I live in London now. I've been living here for thirty years. And like Nadine, I come from a country that has a lot of its own problems. Um, and I hope that we can talk about that later, Nadine. Yeah. Really uh, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? Are you feeling up to this? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I mentioned this to you yesterday when I saw my name was, was linked to your name that you will be interviewing me. I was jumping. I was like, oh my God, I can't, I can't be more grateful than this because I have to mention that I am a biggest fan of Candy and her books. And oh my God, how much I love your books. One of my favorite is uh, Ferdinand uh, McGillan. It's such a good book. You have it. I don't have it. I want to. I haven't got it. It's so funny because I thought I should really have that, but all I have are my novels, and I, I think I gave it away. Is but it yeah, I wrote a, I wrote that book about Ferdinand Magellan last year. Uh, it came out during the pandemic, um, so I'm I'm really grateful that you've read it. Thank oh, you. Oh yeah, it's, I I found it so important because I always talk about the importance of decolonizing the educational system and how our children. <laughs> aren't exposed to the truth and they think that the West discovered our countries, which we have been there for thousands of years before that. So it's, it's so important that your book exists. And if you don't have it, adults or children, everyone should have it. So it's, it's really important. Oh, thank you for the plug. Go out and buy it, everybody. But tonight we are here to talk about Nadine's amazing book, uh, tomorrow. And Nadine, maybe we should start by having you introduce yourself. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you came to write tomorrow. Um, tell us about uh, the journey that the book uh, took to get here. It was originally written in Arabic, wasn't it? Wow. There. 
So yeah, um, to introduce myself, uh, in addition to being a fan of candy, <laughs> I am author and illustrator of picture books, and I come from Syria. So we moved here around is it ten years now? Wow, the time. So I think it's been ten years that I've been living in London. So officially a Londoner, and we obviously moved because staying in Syria was not an option anymore, starting with the war, and uh, um. I did tomorrow, interesting enough, um, in Arabic, in Syria, during the war. So what I love about this book is I was in Syria experiencing what's happening. And I did it for me. I did it mainly for me. I needed to process what's going on. And my, my style of illustration was slowly changing. And I suddenly found myself keep drawing like dark images which I didn't before like I, I it was just a reaction of the war so I felt the need to do it and I felt also the the need to do it for children in Syria because as we all know uh storytelling is therapeutic and I can't think of a better way to explain the war for children than in a picture book so that's what I have in mind I had it in mind that it was in Syria for Syrian children and yeah, uh, it was interesting how I I was doing it while watching the news, while experiencing the different developments of the Syrian war and what was going on. And then when I moved here, I was lucky enough that the book was published in English with Lampana. So then I experienced another experience with having it in English and see the reaction for children in the UK here. Um, yeah, um, if, I, if, if I want to say quickly, the main thing about the book that I found it now so different than 10 years ago is when I wrote it, I didn't mention the word war because in the first year, I mean, I can talk about myself, but I know many Syrians, we didn't think it was war, what was going on in Syria. We thought, oh, it's going to end. It's, it's conflict. So what I wrote is the word conflict because I was, I was in denial, maybe. We were all in denial that this is not war and we didn't want to accept it. Uh, of course, now, if I write tomorrow again, I would definitely mention the word war and I won't be shy of it. I think children know exactly what war is and... And it's, but actually, it's, I think it's really powerful when um, uh, you read it because it's, it must have struck, uh, it must have resonated with a lot of people during the lock lockdown. You know, it, it begins with this boy wondering, what's going on? Why am I not allowed to go out anymore? Everybody's just staying indoors. Everything has changed. It's exactly how it feels like that kind of suffocating isolation that everybody felt last year. Have you had a have you had people commenting on that? Yeah, I mean, that was for me the surprise when the lockdown happened. Uh, uh because exactly what you're saying Candy, for me the book is not about the war, it's not about what's happening outside. It's about it's about what's happening inside in a child's life. So this boy Yezan suddenly doesn't go to school, he doesn't see his friends, and, and all the illustrations are kind of claustrophobic because this is how we felt. We were we felt claustrophobic. I mean, look at this image. He's sitting in his bedroom, but it doesn't look bedroom, it looks like such a claustrophobic image that he's just stuck at home. Um and then the lockdown happened. Who knew nine years later that almost the entire universe, or I don't know how 80% of the universe will experience similar situation where we all stuck at home, all 
all our children didn't go to school and and didn't see their friends so um I was receiving messages from parents. I was getting tweets. I was getting even from school that it helped them process the lockdown and relate to this character. How do you relate to not seeing your friend and your child and your life being upside down? And what I love about it, I love it. I need to actually post it. I haven't posted on Instagram yet, but in the end of the book, so the mom told them, told the, the, the boy in the, in the book that you can't leave. There is a conflict outside, there is a war. Uh, but let's imagine a park, let's imagine the dream place that you want, let's draw it and paint it on the wall. And here they painted on the wall their dream park. And um, in the first lockdown, I received the tweets from uh, a, a family that their son drew on the wall of his bedroom here in London. Who can believe that? A park because they couldn't go to the park and he couldn't see his friends. So, I mean, if it tells me anything, it says that we're all prone to vulnerability, aren't we? And and there is this always othering and and conflict and in problems, right? I think you can relate to that because we both come from from problems. There are problems in our countries, and and always the stories often in, in the UK makes it feel like the other happens to these other poor people, and it doesn't happen to us. But the lockdown proved that we're all prone to this. We all have problems. So a, we need to empathize as much as we uh, can help each other be more connected don't don't think we're not we're disconnected because COVID proved how connected we are and finally not to shy away from these stories even if it's a story about a war I I think all children know about about the war and all experiences through their through their uh, friends in their in their school or they heard about it in the news so these books are important for for everyone not only for Syrian children or children who who had a direct or indirect link with the war. I think it's really fascinating that um, when you started out writing this book, you were actually writing for a very specific audience. Um, you were kind of trying to soothe yourself, yes, but you were writing for a Syrian child Syrian. who was experiencing that kind of isolation and transformation that was going on at the time. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> nobody knew how long that war was going to last. Yeah. Um, and so there's that kind of open-ended thing uh, at the end where you, it's filled with hope and light and possibility. Um, how do you feel now? If you were to write this book now, uh, now that you know what has happened and what has happened in Syria, um, what, what do you think would change in the way you express this story? Um very very good question thank you candy and and it's it's not easy to answer so it's a bit of a sensitive thing to be super honest i mean i since i moved here and i started to write in english i've been loving my experience i love meeting amazing people like you and amazing writers but when i was back in syria i felt more freedom i felt that i can write exactly my feelings i can be passionate and i can just go for it if I would do it now, and how would it be if I do it now, now working in the UK, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. So, for example, let's talk about the illustrations. I mean, I'm sure, um, I don't know if I would dare doing an, an illustration like this if I was, if, I, if this book from the beginning meant to be published in the UK. It's such a dark image, and 
And I, and I really remember the day that I illustrated this. I, uh, it's, it's all watching the news and it's close to the, the TV. And let me show the, let me show the image. Here, here we go. There, the picture of the mom watching the news. But you know, this is one of my favorite images in the book. Yeah, I, I love it. It just says everything. And it's got an emotional thing that you open, you turn it, turn to that page and you know exactly what it's saying. You know exactly the feeling that you're supposed to feel. But you don't think that a British publisher would find, you, you think that this kind of darkness is um, avoided in British publishing? Is that what you're saying? Well, I feel like they're a bit too cautious. I mean, even even words like angry, sometimes you have to change it to make it call the attention and, and simple things that they just a bit shy away from things and try to always be metaphorical rather than direct. I mean, I don't know what the, the latest statistics are, but I, there are more indirect books in about animals rather than people because it's easier to be published. So in general, I'm not talking about independent publishing houses, of course, and I'm not talking about everyone. I'm talking about the mainstream and the bigger one. It's to sell. You need to be more cautious. You need to be... Uh, uh, that's the case. So if I would be doing this book here i would probably not be shy away from these illustrations or maybe i'll find a publisher who will, who will encourage me but i do remember that day that i illustrated those images and we were waking up every day to sad news on, on we would turn the tv on and there will be sad news and and i just did it without thinking now every as, as authors we do think what would the audience say and and what would the publisher say so there is some kind of which i try not to limit myself but it do exist and i hope that more and more now the industry is being more brave is being more experimental so we don't shy away from important topics i think the independent publishing uh, industry is definitely leading the way yeah. whereas like commercial interests make it much harder for uh, the big publishers to be more adventurous about the well, about exploring darkness in children's lives, like like your book does. Um, Absolutely, they're 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 choosing authors that they haven't worked with before, so they they're the one who hiring more BAME authors, ethnic minorities. They're being experimental. Um, I really wish the mainstream publishers will follow the, will follow that because what what it feels now is. It's two separate words, and, and ideally, we need to be all in one word, and our stories shouldn't be considered as, as what do you call it, as, as ethnic diversity or, or cultural diversity. It should, be, it should be good stories. It should be good stories that everyone should read and not targeted to specific people. When we were talking yesterday, you were, you were, um, we were talking about how uh, this kind of sudden rush to publish uh, BAME authors, for anyone who doesn't know what that means, that means I think Black, Asian, minority ethnic authors, because this the, the publishing industry in the UK is so white, blindingly white, and several uh, studies have recently been released that uh, cause a great deal of shame when people realize that they have not really done anything about it. So a lot of people are trying to create change, publishing more books by and about people from other backgrounds. But you were saying that sometimes uh, there's publishing that happened that is, that is about topics that maybe do not match the backgrounds yeah. that we see. Not everybody can write about anything that is 
diverse. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I mean, as as a start, as a start, we do need to upload the industry for waking up. So that's so that's why I start. I'm so happy. What is it? Was it three percent and then jump to six percent? Still, the percentage is so low uh, of of uh, Black, Asian, and minority ethnic writers, but. There is there is an awakening and there is more numbers of people coming in and publishing. So that's absolutely amazing and I'm really happy to see it happening. Otherwise I wouldn't be there, I wouldn't be in the industry if there isn't such movement basically. But that being said, it's so important to be done with sensitivity and with with mindfulness of the of the issues because what I feel is very often publishers take the word BAME and put all BAME authors together and they say, oh, you can tell these stories or you can tell that story since you, you're both BAME or you both come from, uh, you both get considered people of color or you both come from Muslim religion, then you can all tell the same story. No, <laughs> no, that's not the case. And you have to think of authenticity and you have to think of own voices. And I'm really proud that tomorrow is if it's not the only, I'm not aware of any other books based on their own experiences, its own voices, my experience of the war, my experiences of Syria. Most of other books about Syria are written by non-Syrian authors. A lot of them are amazing and I'm so happy they're being published. But very often you think about authenticity. Is it enough to just bring BAME author to write someone else's story? Or does this person at least have some more direct link to the story? It's kind of like about having a stake in the story. So, you know, like, for example, my book, Ferdinand, um, it's about uh, an explorer. And I know he's a Portuguese explorer. I'm not Portuguese. But what he did was he discovered the Philippines, discovered the Philippines. Discovered. And our history books in the Philippines, when I was taught history, it always began with being discovered by Ferdinand Magellan as if we didn't exist before. And when I was writing that book, I was so conscious of what... Um, um, you know, all the children who are going to read this and who were also discovered by Magellan, you know, the East uh, people from West Africa and people from India and all the places that he'd visited and committed genocide. So it's kind of like whether you have a stake in the story and whether the story is, uh, give, gives you, um, you know, it's like you, you, have a, you have a right to that story because your, your heritage is involved in it. Yeah, yeah. And think as well when you link, for example, a writer and illustrator, think of why you're putting them together. Because very often this, this pairing is happening because they're both, for example, labeled as BAME. But is it, I mean, the word BAME is very general. You need to really think of the culture and really to think of the background and really think much more deeper. Otherwise, it will, be, it will become tokenistic. I mean, very often I find that books published about the Middle East or books published about our world are very tokenistic, but are do celebrated as the best books in cultural diversity. I mean, if you look at the characters, you find sometimes the character is in the background, doesn't have agency. And it's again, the what savior narrative. And I thought we're done of that. I thought now the neocolonialist theory is discovered and, and, and there's a scandal and we're done of that. But a lot of the books, if I read them and I was like, why this character is in the background when, when supposedly the story is about him and, and where is the agency? So it's so important that BAME authors are being published more and so important that more stories, more diverse stories are being published in the UK. It's important for children from ethnic minorities and for British children, but it has to be done 
in an empowered and in, and in a more with depth with understanding of the situation. I just want to comment about what you said about your book, how Magellan discovered the Philippines. It's exactly how I felt when I first moved um, to the UK because I was raised in Damascus and we were born repeating every day saying, oh, I come from the oldest city in the world, right? We're so proud. I mean, <laughs> we're like every child keep repeating that, that Damascus is the oldest city in the world, although Aleppo is the second oldest, or so there was a big good argument between Damascus and Aleppo and Syria. And I went to uh, the British Museum with my university and of course, we get to the uh, um, Ashurian and the Assyrian Iraqi part, and they started to talk about the pieces, how they were discovered by this and discovered by that. And that was the biggest shock. I was like, well, A, these items are stolen, or you can use looted, and B, how come discovered when we've been there much more before you? I mean, nobody knows how, how old Damascus is. So it's, it's so sad that such a big institution like the British Museum can't even, at least if they don't want to return any of this item, tweak the language. So that's why your book is so important, and our stories are so important to be published here in the UK to remind them that the educational system and, and the children's book library need to be changed it's not just, you know, and it's also not just subscribing to the idea of decolonization. It's, we're thinking about the children, the children who receive this information, who read these books. Um, for example, you, you recently, was it recently that you visited a refugee camp and uh, you discovered you were quite startled by something that the children told you there? Yeah, um, it wasn't recently. So um, when was it? Oh, my God, since COVID, I mean, traveling, well, <laughs> it was before COVID, so since since I have my own toddler with three, traveling was not <laughs> is not an option anymore. I mean, uh, it's not as easy. Uh, but when I wrote tomorrow, I I made it uh, like a mission to myself to travel to refugee camps and read it really. And um, every time I went there, like you said, it reminded me of the importance of why these books exist and why this book should exist. And my experience from reading Tomorrow in the first year of four in refugee camps is so different than eight and nine years later. So when I read it in the first year of four, uh, of course, I went in a very naive way. I just knocked on the first refugee camp with a box of chocolate and cheese and I said, can I read the story? So I didn't know what to expect. And this is when my experience was building and I was learning from these children what is needed to be done because the book was open up uh, a conversation and become a therapeutic session. They wanted to tell me their own story because them themselves experienced the world. So we're saying like I met children of the age of eight, for example, seven, and they all themselves somehow experienced the war and escaped and moved to Lebanon in that time. Seven years ago when I went to the camp, I met children who are seven. So these children are born in a refugee camp. But what's happening here, they're experiencing their sibling and their parents' trauma. And as we all know, and I read it very constantly, how trauma is inherited. 
So you might have to go through trauma yourself, but without knowing, you, 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 will, you will give it to your children. So, and, and it makes me realize how timeless these books are and how important they are because they've heard about the war from their family and they heard about the war from their siblings and they need to as well process it in their own way, knowing why I woke up to find myself in a refugee camp. Um, I think since then I realized the importance of us of doing these children's books as a duty really for our, for our children in the camps but also here you've written another book um, Jasmine Sneeze the Jasmine Sneeze can you yeah. talk a little bit about that <laughs> oh look at that that's it so the Jasmine Sneeze is a completely different story and it's it's I, I wrote it and illustrated it here in the UK and it was a few years after I moved here uh, and I was shocked to realize that some people actually can live without the sun. It happens. Some countries, they just, just, they just wake up to a dark sky and sleep in a dark sky and you just have to get used to it as Arab, you know. <laughs> so it was, it was a pure nostalgia uh, to my city. Um, I also, when I, when I write a book, and I don't know if you agree with me, Candy, I don't have a cause in my mind, or I want to help, or I want to do this. I mainly do it for myself, to help myself, really. But if it helps someone else, then that's amazing. I don't give it that much uh, uh, heaviness to it. Uh, so I really did the, did the Jasmine Sneeze for myself, too, because it's, it's, it's such a beautiful city where I come from, full of jasmine and, and fountains, and, uh, and full of cats, of course. <laughs> So, so cats in Damascus are honorary citizens. So if you walk, you find hundreds, hundreds of them everywhere, and they're very loved, much loved animals in the city. And what I realized the importance of this book, which was really nice, it's suddenly to tell everyone, in, 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 whether in the UK or in refugee camps, that it's, that Syria is much more than a war. And for for such a for such an old country, for an ancient country that been there been there forever basically the war is so temporary and so short compared to its own long and deep heritage and and culture so uh it's it's beautiful to suddenly children hear about syria about things that are not linked to refugees not linked to war and also in the camps was so beautiful to see that them trying to remember the beautiful things the children and and you hear the story so i tell them this is what i remember and this is the jasmine sneeze and and they start to tell me stories about how they would spend their summer on the beach or how would go to the mountains and, and what, is, what is their country to them. There's much more than a war and what's their culture and heritage. That sounds wonderful. I can't wait to get my copy. But oh, I, think yeah, no, I think the time is ticking away and our, we're coming to the end of our interview. Is there anything that you'd like to say that we have missed out? Is there anything that we missed out that, uh, that we, we should be talking about? Um, have you got any other books in the, uh, in the pipeline? Well, I just finished a book from uh, Otterbury Publishing House. So uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention the name yet or anything. So please watch my space once I post about it and talk about it. It's, uh, it's a beautiful book talking about hero children and children that inspired us from, from different countries, including the Middle East. So watch my space.
Fantastic. Um, you're going to be interviewing, uh, who is your, who, this is a book chain of authors. And so who is the author you're going to be interviewing uh, after this? Yes, yeah, so it's on the 6th of October. If you enjoyed this interview, please come join me because I am very lucky to be interviewing the lovely Natasha Dubow. Please let me know if I'm mentioning her last name correct. Natasha Dubow, right? Bebo, Bebo. See, I told you. I'm not native English, so I'm, <laughs> I'm excused. But I like Bebow. I love it. I'm going to call her Natasha Bebow from now on. <laughs> so I'm interviewing Natasha Bebo uh, for her book, The Crying Man. It's a nonfiction book. Such a fun interview, so do not miss it. Natasha is such a lovely author. It's about the invention of the Crayola. I love that book. That's fantastic. I've got a copy. Yeah, well, yeah, so yeah. Good. I love it here with me. Let me show it with me. <laughs> there. We have the last few minutes to show it. So we will be talking about this book. So come join me on 6th of October. Same time. Same time. I just want to tell everyone that uh, this is Instagram Live. Uh, you, uh, thank you for joining us for the live, uh, live interview. But the recording is going to be played in our YouTube channel, in the, the, uh, the Book Chain Project's YouTube channel. So we'll be posting about that when that comes up. But for now, we're going to have to say goodbye. It's been so lovely talking to you, Nadine. Thank you so much, Candy. Uh, I'm so, again, so lucky to have you interviewing me. Congratulations. Your book really is. It's moving. It's amazing. And I thought the illustrations, they just like get you like this. <laughs> oh my God, my heart. <laughs> I hope everyone rushes out to buy a copy. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I don't know. I don't know how to turn this off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Candy. Thanks, Nadine, for an amazing interview. I really hope you enjoyed listening to them and you can check out their books now. Next week, Nadine is going to be interviewing Natasha Bieber, who's one of the uh, heads of the British SCBWI at the moment. That's the Scooby or Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Natasha is also a writer of picture books and she's written a fantastic story about Crayola crayons and where they came from. And her experience pulling that together and sharing that with schools is a fantastic lesson. So I hope to see you there. Bye for now.